Hello and welcome to the Adventure Podcast. This podcast is about helping listeners learn from and meditate on our sermons from anywhere at any time. Thanks for joining and let's get started. So let's, dry, let's, let's jump in. So one of the questions, one of the accusations that's often made against Christianity is that Christianity crushes diversity. And when people will tell you, doesn't Christianity crush diversity? Aren't you trying to crush all the cultures that are not like you? What they're really asking, at least in this country, is this question. Isn't Christianity a white religion? That's frequently what they're asking. Now, what I want to do today is I want to give you some history. So this is going to be that class you tried to skip in high school. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to run, run you through some stuff because when someone tells you that Christianity is a Western white religion, you need to have some information. And it's really simple and it's easily verified to kill that argument to put it down, to bring them into a rational, logical discussion. So on May 20th, 1961, well, when I was a kid, there was a group of people, some of you will be old enough to remember this. I mean, Lisa Ashby, I think, already had grandkids at this point. Um, (laughs) Hi, Lisa. Um, They were called the Freedom Riders. And it was a mixed group of blacks and whites that got on buses and went to places to demonstrate against segregation. And on May 20th, 1961, a busload of these Freedom Riders traveled to Montgomery, Alabama to challenge segregation in the heart of segregation. And when they got off the bus, they were greeted by about 500 men, women, and children who immediately attacked them. Can you put that picture up for me? They attacked them with pipes, with bats, they threw rocks, they, they assaulted them severely. Uh, two of the Freedom Riders were actually beaten unconscious. And through the entire attack, the Montgomery PD stood off to the side and watched. Montgomery was known as a city of churches. And many... Maybe most of the people who attacked the Freedom Riders were regular churchgoers, and many of them were church leaders. Now, less than three weeks after that 1961 attack, Montgomery's most prominent pastor, a guy by the name of Henry Lyon Jr., gave a fiery speech Uh, before the local white citizens council denouncing the civil rights protesters and the cause for which they were beaten. And he tried to make his defense from a Christian perspective. Here's what he said. Ladies and gentlemen, for 15 years I have had the privilege of being pastor of a white Baptist church in this city. If we stand 100 years from now, it will still be a white church. 
I am a believer in a separation of the races, and I am nonetheless a Christian. And of course, the crowd applauded. If you want to get in a fight with the one that started the segregation of the races, then you come face to face with your God. The difference in color, the difference in our body, our minds, our life, our mission upon the face of this earth is God-given. Now, Lion saw himself as a devoted believer committed to Christ, and he was far from an extremist among the Southern Baptists. A former president of the Alabama Baptist Convention, his Montgomery church had more than 3,000 members. But racism was tied to white Christians long before the American South, long before the American Civil War. European imperialism often hid behind the need to evangelize all of these lost barbarians they used evangelism as a smokescreen for their own colonial dreams to gain land, to gain resources, to be greedy. And it was commonly believed among the Europeans that the Africans were so backward and savage that they had to be pulled toward the European Enlightenment in order to no longer be savages. And evangelism was what they used to commercially exploit them. Now, when that didn't work, when they wouldn't evangelize, the same church-going people endorsed some horrific tragedies and travesties in the name of saving their souls. So in reality, what it was, it was a Eurocentric xenophobia uh, remember this. Let me, let me run you back through history. Italians wanted to rule the world. Remember that? Spanish wanted to rule the world. Remember that? French wanted to rule the world. Remember that? English wanted to rule the world. Remember that? Germans wanted to remember or wanted to rule the world. Remember that? Remember that? Remember that? <laughs> so you had all this nationalism that was hiding behind the church. And so you had these monarchs and these political groups using corrupted Christianity as an organizational hammer to beat people with, to exploit them for financial gain. And since the Europeans settled the United States, or what would become the United States, guess what they brought with them? Their xenophobia. They brought with them the thought that some races are better than other races. We got it from our great-great-great-great-grandparents, from wherever they came from. And it's a shameful view. It was back then, and it still is. So because of that xenophobia that came from Europe, that used Christianity as a smokescreen for greed, 
It's often suggested that Christianity is the religion of Western white people and white supremacy. Man, we've certainly heard that mantra for the last three or four years, haven't we? Over and over and over. And the media never stops to question it. And the truth is, white supremacists today have built on lies that generations have propagated for centuries. And they try to find some divine thing to make them special and to kind of give them sanction for being sinful, for being selfish. But is Christianity really a Western white religion? Listen, the answer is no, it's not. In fact, this might shock you, but in fact, white people were some of the last people to hear about Christianity. We were some of the latest people to get on that boat. It might surprise you to know that right now, if you were to take all of Christianity and average it down to a single person, the average Christian today in the world is a dark-skinned young woman living south of the equator. There are more Christians south of the equator than there are north of the equator. And that young, dark-skinned woman living south of the equator is going to live in a small village of just a few dozen people. That's the average Christian today. And believe me, she is the farthest thing possible from moi. Get that? I'm sophisticated. I use French. <laughs> and I eat Italian the other night. Never eat Italian. All right, so let me run you through some stuff you need to get because I want you to be able to intellectually meet non-intellectual arguments. <laughs> All right, number one, Christianity has always been racially diverse and multicultural. It always has been. We're the last part to be added in there, basically. So contrary to this popular misinformation the media continues to promulgate, the Christian movement was multicultural, multi-ethnic from the outset. Jesus absolutely scandalized the racist world. When he told a story about someone from his own race being beaten and mugged, and then he made the hero somebody from another race, a Samaritan, a half-breed. Now, I'm not going to kid you. You and I would look at an Israeli Jewish person from that time period and at a Samaritan from that time period, and we would go, they're different. <laughs> but they spotted it, and they believed it. He tells the story about the good Samaritan. And it knocked the socks off people. It gave them vertigo to hear a great teacher make one of those people the hero over one of his own people. John's gospel records the life-changing conversation Jesus had with one of those women at a well. I mean, men didn't speak to women who were alone, and they certainly didn't speak to Samaritan women, especially sexually promiscuous Samaritan women, and they certainly didn't allow their rabbis to talk to sexually promiscuous women. But Jesus didn't care. Or 
Maybe it is that he did care, but he cared about the woman. The diversity of the Christian movement that Jesus kindled exploded after the resurrection. Look at Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to have you underline some stuff. Therefore, go and make disciples of who? All the nations. So let me give you a little, another interesting insight. Back then, nations were determined by skin color. They were also determined by religion. They were also determined by language. So you could have two people who had the same exact skin tones, but one spoke this language, one spoke this language. They considered each other from opposite races. But Jesus, all the way back then, says, you're going to go not just to your race, you're going to go to all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now watch this. Teach these new disciples to obey what? Underline that. All the commands I have given you. Get this. What he's saying is, you teach them to do the same things I've told you to do. You don't get any exceptions. Everybody who's mine does the same thing. There's no special class here. In the book of Acts, which records the first wave of Christianity, God's Spirit enabled them to proclaim the gospel of Jesus in different languages, meaning different races could understand. Now, watch this. Now, there's a map, by the way, and you're listening, guy. Let's go ahead and put that map up here. So as we read through here, but the name of the place in the white boxes, that's actually over the location that those people are from. All right, so that's, you're basically looking at what was considered the known world. Now watch this from Acts 2. At that time, there were devout Jews from where? Every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed. These people are all rednecks. <laughs> These are hillbillies. I mean, that's how the Galileans were, were viewed. And yet we hear these uneducated bumpkins speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the areas of Libya, around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? Shortly after that, God calls this hyper-Jewish dude named Saul, turns him into an apostle. And here's what Paul says. Paul continues to rip up the verse. Paul was a Jewish man from a Jewish council going after non-Jews with the gospel. This was hard even for his own people to swallow. Colossians chapter 3. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like who? Yeah, not your favorite teacher, not your favorite nationality, 
become like your creator. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile. Now remember, to the Jews, that was the only two races. You're either Jewish or you're not. That would have been fun at dinner. Um, you're circumcised or you're uncircumcised. Barbaric, meaning not Greek, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters, and he lives in where? All of us. Galatians 3. There is no longer Jew or Gentile. He says race doesn't matter. No more slave or free, male or female. There's still special privileges for anyone based on how they're born, where they're born, or what they're born. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. All right, here's the next thing, too. Christianity has always been socioeconomically diverse and multicultural. Socioeconomic diversity has been with the gospel since the day Jesus said, hey, here's why I'm here. It has always been. Remember this, Jesus never owned anything. He literally was homeless. Scripture says he had no place to lay his head. I mean, he stayed with friends all the time. He owned no place. And yet, when he died, he had to borrow a tomb from a wealthy guy. You know, I mean, you can, if you're not going to use it long, you can borrow a tomb. <laughs> but Jesus interacted with the well-to-do, and he interacted with the people who were absolutely down on their luck. And he made this central to all of his teaching that God's people take care of people who have nothing. James, his brother, commanded Christians, gave them a, gave them a heads up, not to treat, treat rich people any differently than they treated the beggar who came in with nowhere to live. Watch James 2. Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. Man, that's pretty straightforward, right? So this idea that Christianity has been a diversity-resistant white religion of privilege is utterly ridiculous and it is utterly unreconcilable with Christianity and with actual history. All right, number three. Christianity was in a lot of places long before it made it to Europe. <laughs> Europe were the last people really to find Christ as far as the, you have the, the, the racial thing from our concept goes. It is a commonly parroted misconception that Christianity was spread across Africa by white people in the colonial era. But if you come into the New Testament and you actually read the history that's recorded for us in the New Testament, we meet a highly educated black man who became a follower of Jesus 600 years before the gospel found its way to Britain and 1,400 years before it arrived in America. In Acts chapter 8, God takes Philip and he drops Philip along a road, which was apparently a surprise to Philip. 
drops him along the side of a road and says, I want you to find this guy here and I want you to deal with this. This man that God wanted Philip to talk to, here's how scripture describes him, Acts chapter 8, verse 27. He was the treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Kandaki, or in English we would say Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. So Philip appears as this Ethiopian is driving by, and Philip can hear this Ethiopian guy, and he's reading from a scroll, and he's reading from the book of Isaiah. And Philip kind of runs up alongside of him and he goes, what you reading? There he goes, I'm trying to read this thing from Isaiah, but man, this doesn't make sense to me. Really? I know that book. Can you explain it to me? Yeah. So Philip stops with this man and he explains to this man what Isaiah is talking about with the Messiah. And he shows him that Jesus, whom everybody heard about at that point, how Jesus was the Messiah that's promised in the book of Isaiah. And as they're going along, the guy looks down and he sees a small body of water along the road and he goes, here's water. I can be baptized right there, right? All we need is water. <laughs> Philip baptized him. Now we have no record of what happened when that guy returns back to Ethiopia with the gospel and presents it in the court of Candace, the queen. But we know this. We know that Christianity took root in Egypt solidly by the, first, by the end of the first century. We know that parts of the gospel, actually, I think it was parts of the book of Mark, a scroll was found in a tomb in Egypt, and they dated everything in the tomb to the mid-first century, so it was like before 50 AD. They dated all of that stuff to about 50 AD or a little bit before, before they translated it. And then when they translated it, it was the teachings of Jesus. I think it was from, I think it was from the book of Mark. We know that by the second century, so by 100, the gospel had spread into Tunisia and into Sudan and about halfway down the continent of Africa. We know that in the fourth century, a pair of slave brothers led the gospel out through Ethiopia and into Eritrea, which led to the founding of the second ever Christian state in the world, 50 years before the gospel was accepted in Rome. I love that. See, this is where knowing history pays off. The actual truth is, white people got most of their theology from black people. <laughs> from Africa. Long before Europe ever heard of Jesus, the Africans were getting baptized and preaching the gospel and had gone almost two-thirds of the way down the continent with that good news. You say, well, I've never heard that before. Yeah, you have. Knock that off. <laughs> Luke 23, Jesus is carrying the cross. He falls. They grab a guy to carry the crossbar for him. The guy's name was Simon. They identify where he's from. Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is a city in what would now be known as Libya. Acts chapter 2 tells us that Africans from Egypt and Libya were at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. Acts chapter 8 tells us the story of Philip taking the gospel to a leader of a court 
a foreign royal court. Acts chapter 11 tells us that men from North Africa were promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ across Africa while the first believers in Jerusalem are still arguing about whether or not they should tell people who aren't Jewish. <laughs> God's word makes it clear. God wanted all of us to understand the gospel exploded first in Africa. The gospel, long before Europe was Europe, 1,600 years before slavery, was owning a continent. Tertullian, who lived from 155 to 240 AD, is called the founder of Western theology. He was from Tunisia. He invented the term Trinity as a way to describe God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit functioning together. Origen of Alexandria lived from 185 to 254 AD, wrote what we now call On the First Principles. Any pastor you've got who has been to a Bible college or seminary has studied On the First Principles. It's a systematic laying out of how to understand Christian theology. It's foundational for all the theological writings you're going to read from anybody who's educated. He was from the northern coast of Africa. One of the most important and influential theologians in early Christianity was the 4th century scholar Augustine of Hippo. He was from Algeria. Got a college in the area that knows him. So today, you look at the northern coast of Africa, any of the parts that touch the Mediterranean are dominated by Islam. But over 60% of the population of all the countries in Africa that don't touch the Mediterranean are populated by people who identify as Christian. It is projected that by 2050, 40% of the world's Christians will live in Africa, and that's in that central and southern Africa. Listen, does that sound like a white man's religion to you? No. You need to know that stuff so you can shut down that garbage, that foolishness when people throw it at you. Let's do another one. The Middle East. So obviously it started in the Middle East. That's where Jesus lived. The, the Middle East is home to the world's oldest, fastest growing, most persecuted churches. So if you've been watching, you see on Facebook and Instagram where they're doing the 10-year challenge. You see people posting a picture of themselves 10 years ago next to a current picture of themselves. So I thought it might be fun to do a 2,000-year challenge with Jesus. All right, so let's go ahead and put that picture up. So the left is Jesus 2,000 years ago. <laughs> And the right is Jesus today. Do you see the problem? So much of the religious art that we have today came from the time of the Italians uh, and early Catholicism, so that usually all we see now are what the Italians thought were beautiful back around 1,000. <laughs> In fact, if you look at these pictures, I always, this always makes me chuckle. If you go into a Catholic church and you'll see pictures of the royal guard standing around Jesus, they're Swiss. <laughs> the Roman soldiers are all Swiss. <laughs> it cracks me up. 
So we've seen so many of those reinterpreted, reimagined Jesuses from a thousand years ago that we forget that Jesus came from a land of olive-skinned or deeply tanned, black-haired people. Jesus' followers were first called Christians at Antioch. Antioch is just across, or just across the border, kind of even with Aleppo, Syria, which you've heard about in the news over the last few years, inside modern-day Turkey. That area now has one of the smallest populations. So the place where the people first called us Christians, which, by the way, was an insult. Christians back then, to call someone a Christian back then, was like to use the N-word now. I mean, it was considered the worst insult you could give someone. And that area now, thanks to ISIS and Islam and so forth, the smallest proportions of Christians ever is there now. Iraq is home to the oldest continuous Christian communities in the world, begun 500 years before Muhammad founded Islam. St. Thaddeus Monastery in Iran is actually dated to 66 A.D. It was a church within 30 years or so of the death of Jesus. It was where Thaddeus went and taught. And as Thaddeus is teaching in Iran, we're still hundreds of years from the gospel going to Europe. Now, let's talk about the Middle East for a second. There's so, the, the persecution that happens there, it's tragic. In 1987, the Christian population of Iraq was about 1.4 million people. After Gulf War II, the population of Christians in Iraq dropped to below 500,000. And since the rise of ISIS several years ago, some of the oldest Christian settlements in the world have been completely depopulated by persecution. So if you want to continue to leave this notion that Christian is a Western white man's religion, you have no means for objectively understanding what's happening in the world in that area. Some of the oldest Christian populations in the world are being wiped out now. But the story of what's happening in the Middle East isn't just a story of despair. In 1979, there were an estimated 500 Christians from Muslim backgrounds in Iran. 500. So basically, there were less Muslims in, or less Christians in Iran than what we'll have here this weekend. A year later, the Islamic Revolution transformed that Muslim-majority uh, country into an oppressive regime. Women lost their rights. It sounds like the Handmaid's Tale now, right? Women lost their rights, bank accounts closed, so on, so on, so forth. Extreme imams grasped power. Public executions became everyday things that happened. That led to a lot of disillusionment. That opened the door for Jesus to speak to a, a massive numbers of Iranians. And since that happened, hundreds of thousands of Iranian Muslims have accepted Jesus Christ. The church in Iran is the fastest growing church in the world. That amazes me. Let's go to India. So we have a lot of work in India. When you think of India, what religion do you think of? You think of Hinduism, right? Because the word India comes from Hinduism, comes from Hindu, 
What's interesting, the reason we think of Hinduism when we think of India is because while Christianity is the most, most uh, ethnically dispersed, I mean, you can belong to just about any, any well, you, not just about, you can't, I just totally wrecked my own theology. You can belong to any racial group in the world and be a Christian. So we're everywhere. But Hinduism tends to all be concentrated. Most Hindus trace themselves back to India. So in India, most people are Hindu. Muslims, the second, or actually the largest minority in India, represent only 14% of the population. Christians, 27 million, actually are just slightly more than 2% of the population of India. And so you'll have people say, and we hear it all the time, well, Christianity doesn't belong. They already have religion. Christianity doesn't belong in India. So does Christianity belong in India? If you ask the current Hindu government, their answer is, "Uh uh-uh. No, India for Hindus only. And some of that is in reaction to the British. (laughs) Owning them and subjugating them and colonizing them. So they connect Christianity to British imperialism. But it might surprise you to know that Christianity had gained a strong foothold on the southwest coast of India as early as 52 AD with the arrival of the Apostle Thomas. In fact, southern India had a solid Christian population about 200 years before Hinduism got to southern India. India's Christian heritage is ancient. Historian Robert Eric Freiberg concludes, it's certain that there there were well-established communities of Christians in South India no later than 200 AD and perhaps much earlier. I mean, the Catholic missionaries were really surprised when they got to India and there were already churches there. (laughs) They weren't sure how that could happen. So, Do the math with me on this Western white religion thing. Christianity found its way into Britain around 600 AD. It was just starting to become popular in Italy around 300 AD. Yet it was already well established in India by 100 AD. So back to this question of diversity. One of the areas of tension between Christianity and Hinduism is this thing about diversity. The traditional Hindu caste system um, locks people in a social status forever. So whatever status you're born into, that's where you stay. With Christians, we tell people, we tell and we promote among ourselves, you don't treat anyone differently, right? The whole caste system is based on treating people differently. They'll tell you that there's not a caste system in India, but the Indians will tell you different. The Bible promotes the equal dignity and value of all humans. And what the church did when it came to India was it united upper class and lower caste people as one people. It eliminated that. This boundary-crushing fellowship to this day, upsets a lot of the Hindus. All right, go to the next one, D, China. Here's one that'll knock your socks off. 
In AD 781, a Christian monk by the name of Chin Chen. I love the simplicity of Chinese names. Might have been a physical trait, I don't know. I might be seeing one of his relatives in the mirror in the mornings. Chen Chen composed an inscription of roughly 1,800 Chinese characters on a large stone tablet called a stila. It is one of the richest sources. There's a picture of that. Can you bring that up? Yep. Okay, there's a picture of it there. It is one of the richest sources about early Christianity in China that there is. So what he says in that is that Christianity arrived in central China around 635 A.D. So within two or three dozen years of Christianity arriving in Britain, it was also arriving in the capital city of China. And the Christians found such favor with the emperor that within three years there was a church established there and there were a handful of missionaries living among the people sharing the gospel. Now, for most of that 13th century since, Christianity has not openly gained a foothold in China. Ancestor worship is a big deal. So it's very hard for it to grow there. And then you've got now, as of late, you've had over the last 100 years or so, you've had government crackdowns. But the church in China is growing in a way that very few could have predicted. It is hard to get access on the number of Christians in China right now. But they've been there a lot longer than it was, the gospel was really anywhere where there were white people. And most people in China worship in what are called unofficial house churches. The people who call them unofficial house churches are the government. <laughs> The people that belong to them just call them churches. But conservative estimates in 2010 put China's Christian population at more than 68 million people. Experts predict there will be more Christians in China than in the United States by 2030. They also predict that at the rate it's growing, China will be a majority Christian nation by 2050. All right, so let's wrap it up. Conclusion. What about America? I don't know. Be real honest. I don't know. I know this. I know it still shocks some of us to hear that people associate Racism with Christianity. And when someone says that to you, I know what your natural re your reaction is, is to be offended by that. We look at it, and we see that the New Testament is one of the most anti-racist texts ever written. And yet they're not totally wrong, except that it isn't Christianity. See, racism isn't, a white thing it's a human thing it's anytime you're around somebody who doesn't look like you you have just a little bit of hesitation you don't understand their culture you're not sure what to expect the media has fed us a lot of stress but fellowship across racial and ethnic and financial differences 
is as intrinsic to the message of Jesus Christ as is his command to care for the poor. And yet, there is a painful association between racism and American Christianity. Not biblical Christianity, but American Christianity. And it makes it hard for them to talk to white people. It makes white people, makes it hard for them to listen. Folks, you want to know how you defeat racism? You want to know how you obey the command to love your neighbor as yourself regardless of who they are? You know who you got to talk to first? Go and look at yourself in the mirror and have a conversation. That's where it starts. And then we talk to our kids about it. I was very blessed. I grew up around a lot of clan. My mom and dad are the exact opposite of racist, and that's how they raised us. I got the holy heck beat out of me when I was a freshman in high school because my two best friends were an Apache Indian and a black kid. But it starts with you taking ownership of your own prejudices, even if they're just that big, and making sure that you don't let something like, well, Smokey Mauve, Interactive white cream, right? I went to Sherwin-Williams, don't forget that. I went to Sherwin-Williams and made, the, made that poor guy working behind the counter the most awkward anyone will ever make him in his entire professional life. When I said, he goes, How can I, what can I help you do? And I said, I need you to tell me what color this is. He's like, what? And I'm like, I know that you can mix this up, right? You can make a paint. I need to know what it's called. We found it. He's probably still in therapy, but we found it. He's like, I, sir, I don't know what to do with that. I know. I'll have to look up the numbers if you're really curious, but I have the SW numbers for him. But this is where it starts. It starts in our hearts. Whether it's a question about people who make more than us, a question about people who make less than us, a question about people who are lighter than us, who are darker than us? We need to deal with that. Because that's not Christianity. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for loving us. Father, we thank you that Jesus warned his disciples that someday that gospel that gospel that was for people of all nations, of all colors, of all languages, Father, we're grateful that it eventually found its way to us on the other side of the world from where it started. And Father, may we see people as Jesus sees people. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.